Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined via Zoom by Michael Rand and Ben Gessling of the Star Tribune, where we are going to discuss, among other things, Sunday's game against the Bears, the playoff standings, football, but then also things that we should start with, things that are much bigger than football with DeMar Hamlin's situation and how the entire NFL world is reacting to that. We just heard from players uh, via Zoom as the Vikings facility is under a foot of snow, I guess, as we all are. Um, we heard from Harrison Phillips, who played with DeMar Hamlin in Buffalo. We heard from Patrick Jones, who played one season at uh, Pitt with DeMar Hamlin as well. And just talking about their relationship with those guys. And even if you had no relationship as a player with DeMar Hamlin, a lot of players have thoughts around the league after that just gruesome, um, really traumatic scene where he's laying on the ground and having to be revived, according to reports. Uh, but Ben, you were on those Zoom calls with me when we were listening to these players. You asked them questions. What stood out to you about the way that those two guys who did know DeMar, how they yeah. handled this and how they look at it? Yeah, I mean, Harrison Phillips had a lot to say about it, especially um, he said he was at the Timberwolves game Monday night with um, Sheldon Day, one of their practice squad defensive linemen that they had just signed. He said, hey, you want to go to the Timberwolves game? So they brought their fiancés. And, um, his fia- Harrison Phillips' fiancé showed him the news on Twitter about um, DeMar Hamlin. So Phillips said he left the game, basically went home, said I dropped to my knees and prayed for him. And I said I didn't get to bed until – all of my former teammates got back to Buffalo. It was basically texting guys, trying to figure out what was going on and what he could do. Um, eventually ended up connecting with people in Cincinnati with a nurse that he said, I, I just want to be able to do something. I uh, Can I provide meals? And, you know, th- this is, it's a common thing. Obviously, when people go through traumatic stuff, that's one of the things people, you just have to <laughs> figure out a way to to get food on your table when you don't have time to necessarily think straight. So it's a just a way that you can help, a simple way that you can help. And he said, I, I want to provide dinner for the family, for everybody working on the ICU floor. Um, so I did that last night. He said he's doing it again tonight. But it it's just like anybody else that you end up in this kind of a situation. You're sitting there saying, you know, what can I do? How can I help? Um, you, know, you, you feel helpless, I think, otherwise. And that certainly was, I think, in his voice on – uh, Wednesday afternoon when we talked to him, he, he's trying, he's praying for him. He's trying to help um, in tangible ways as well. But you know, he said, getting back to it, he said, my, my thought process is not great right now. It, I'm basically, my, my mind is unsettled and um, yeah, knowing that this is still going on, knowing that DeMar Hamlin, a guy that he played with last year, is still in critical condition. Sounds like he was improving on Wednesday, but still in a very serious situation. Meanwhile, you're preparing to go play a game as if it had been a um, you know broken ankle or something like Austin Schlotman had on Sunday. So it's players compartmentalize these things all the time, and they have to because it's a brutal sport. And I don't know how you would deal with it otherwise. Deal with the knowledge of how brutal it is, unless you were able to compartmentalize some of this stuff, but. This one especially would I would imagine is really, really hard to just kind of move on and do your job like you normally would, knowing that what happened on Monday night to DeMar Hamlin in theory could happen to anybody. Yeah. And what stood out to me was Patrick Jones said what I'm sure a lot of players are thinking. And he said, I have to remember I'm playing for a lot of reasons. Um, 
and one of them is now going to be playing for, he said, my brother yeah. and Demar Hamlin and um, Nathan Peterman, who's now suddenly the Bears starting quarterback, uh, also played with Demar Hamlin at Pitt and said that this is a lot of guys dreams and he said inherently we to some level all know that this is a risk and i think seeing it and saying you know it are two very different things obviously especially being on the field sharing a field or a locker room with somebody who's going through their heart stopping on a football field which sadly is not new to us percy harvin had his heart stop on a practice field at winter park was this in 2010 or 11 uh 2010 i believe no no yeah i can't remember there was stuff with yes i think it was 10 yeah that was the year of all the the crazy stuff there was a few things but i think it was 10 yeah and and that gets quickly forgotten and the sad part is that the machine is going to go on at some point and guys now who are you know very open about these things as patrick jones and harrison phillips are and a lot of players are being are talking about just the emotional battle they have to go through of understanding that they're doing this for a paycheck and a job as much as love of the sport yeah. and a sport that you think Joe Theismann snapping his leg is routine. You think that's okay. Well, Ryan Shazier being paralyzed. Okay. We can somehow compartmentalize that as football fans or sometimes players can is like, yeah, it's brutal. But to see a guy's heart stop on the field and seeing it on a national primetime game, I think too, it just it had the biggest impact it could possibly have. And that that has guys wondering when I'm taking this practice field or taking the next live game rep. Um, that has to be in the back of a lot of their heads now moving forward. And and I think we heard players echo that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think both of you guys articulated a lot of these things really well already. And Ben talking about the compartmentalizing, it's a brutal sport. And, you know, the 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 strange thing about this is it it is such a like from what we can understand and what we know about what happened, and I, I talked to a cardiologist for the Daily Delivery podcast that'll show, that'll air on on Thursday. Um, but you know everybody's kind of seen a lot of these other you know kind of explainers on this already. Like this was an extremely fluky thing. It seems like not something that's like particular to football. Not something that's going to happen very often in a year. Like maybe a handful of times ever in a year. But that doesn't change the humanity of when you see it and when it becomes so real to you, like when you're on the field or when you're a former player, whether you're just watching it on TV, like watching that happen to a person, even if you can say intellectually, well, that probably will never happen again, doesn't change the fact that you saw it and then have to go and play a game, you know, a few days later. It reminded me a little bit. It it makes me think back to 2001. So I, I had I grew up, had a friend. A guy named Tim Hyde that ended up working over at the, the promotions department eventually at KFAN. But Tim and I grew up together. We were good friends uh, growing up really from elementary school on. Um, both just sports nuts. And we got into – we had a NASCAR phase. We Then we got really into NASCAR for a while. Um, Tim was a big Dale Earnhardt fan. And I remember the Daytona 500 the year that Dale Earnhardt died. Um, I, I think I'd missed the end of the race. And I, my parents, I think, were watching it because they'd started to watch a little bit of this stuff as I'd gotten into it. And you see the Dale Earnhardt crash and, um, you know, you, it, initially, you know, it's really serious. And then later on, you find out, no, he, he died. And um, you know, obviously all of the, the changes that have happened in that sport since then, the safety things have, have probably saved lives since that point. Um, you know, so there's there's a, a silver lining, I guess, to that. Um, I covered a a Penn State pole vaulter dying at the Big Ten Indoor Track Championships Um in 2002 at, at the University of Minnesota. 
And a lot of changes have happened to that sport as a result of that. I'm not saying that any changes will necessarily happen or maybe that there's much that you could do with this that will make it safer. The, the sport is inherently violent as a, you know, just a result of the way it's played, but it, it does make you stop and say, um, at what price does our entertainment come with? I mean, these are, these are people's lives. These are people that have families. These are people that, um, you know, put it all on the line every week. And, you know, we, we love it. We make our livings talking about it and writing about it. Um, but it, it does kind of make you feel, it makes you stop and say, am I, am I complicit in this in some ways? And it, it's one of those things. I'm not saying anybody should shut the sport down. I'm not saying that we should all, you know, go do something else with our lives. But I do think it's worth stopping and asking these questions at this point, or maybe as we go forward, maybe not right now, but as we go forward, I think it's worth continuing to ask these questions and, and hold these things accountable and say, hey, um, this has a big platform in our entertainment culture and, and people love it and we all love the game and that's great. Um, but what cost does it come with? We We need to, I think... Uh, keep those things in mind as well. And I think it's important too, in the ongoing context of the discussion of player safety, that really wasn't put onto the NFL's lap until there was public pressure, right? Yeah. Until there yeah. was the concussion um, wave of awareness and former players coming forward. And now we're hearing about how poor a lot of their uh, healthcare is post NFL play. I heard Dominique Foxworth, saying that you know players get five years of healthcare after and that's pretty much it yeah. and so that's not covering you know when you're gonna need it really yes down the line so there's a lot of issues with this league and how they treat their former players and how they view that player health and how that money all of that money that those teams rake in is allocated not toward that necessarily um so yeah it is it is important in the role we play especially I think to us to revolve around that ongoing discussion of holding the league accountable and public pressure for that player safety, because I mean, it's down to little league where I've, I know there are kids who wear like chest plates out in the outfield because they don't want to get beamed, you know, with a ball in a similar way that just that kind of trauma and shock can stop a heart as we saw. Um, it, it's just, there needs to be progression in the sport. And I do think it's possible. And I do think we've already seen it where we've talked about jacked up being a segment 20 years. Yeah. Ago. I remember that as a kid every week. Sure. So we've come a long way already and there's still a long way to go. And it's not to say that the sport can't survive in involvement when it, when it comes to that, you know? So um, I think anybody wants to listen more from, from players too, I would suggest just finding those clips of Harrison Phillips, reading our stories about what these guys are saying, because those are the people that Mike, as you pointed out too, that they're, they're the ones we need to listen to. Uh, when it comes to guiding our way forward through the through just this in general, yeah, go back to listen to Ryan Clark on ESPN. Yeah, he was great. I mean, he had a lot of important things to say. Yeah, because it's because um, it's not just this. It's it's like it's the sport in general. Like you guys were saying, it's it this particular thing. While it might have, while it might you know be a little bit on the you know unpredictable, not not likely to happen again. Side anytime an NFL game is happening, there's a there's the potential for a you know a life changing injury perhaps it's not going to happen most games or even you know a, a, you know it's not going to happen a lot but there is that potential there all the time and that's that's the danger that these guys are are facing every time they they play the game 
Well, and the other thing here, I think that comes to my mind is, you know, I, you're mentioning injuries like Joe Theismann, Andrew, Alex Smith comes to mind when that happened a few years back. And, and we talk about the rehab. We talk about the, the courage it takes to come back from that. And these things get, framed as you know stories of human triumph and things we can learn from players overcoming adversity that's totally valid I, I think that's completely part of it but we also need to look at the whole thing and and the NFL certainly has interest in playing up the courageous nature of the recovery and the NFL has a big machine with which to advance the narratives it chooses to advance um a lot of its own in-house channels, a lot of media networks that either it owns or has lucrative financial relationships with. Um, I'm not sitting here saying that we, those of us who cover the league and do not have explicit financial relationships with it are here to save the sport. I'm not saying that people that are in these roles are, um, without compromising interests at times where you have relationships with people. That's all part of it. But I I do think it's important when those of us who are in these roles, and especially those of us who are covering this league, covering these teams, without a dog in the fight, so to speak, um, and I'm I'm saying this to myself as well to hold myself accountable. Like we need to cover all of the elements of this. We need to check in with retired players and write about the things that they're going through because it's very very easy to kind of when a guy moves on, kind of forget about him and let him live the rest of his life, and then you move on to the next person because that's more entertaining and that is the stuff that we kind of ultimately fuels the, the fuels the machine, fuels the the clicks, fuels fuels the the viewership, the readership, whatever. Um, but this is a sport that can affect the rest of your life, even if your career is only a few years. And I, I think we need to do a better job of telling some of those stories as well. As somebody who's been knocking on, not, I literally should just knock on Shree Floyd's door, but as somebody who's been knocking on every door of the person around him for years, uh, this is my public cry. Please talk to me. I would love to share your story, Sharif. Um, but yeah, you're right. In general, there are a lot of players that uh, you just kind of forget about because they don't have those big flame outs like he did um, yeah. where his season... And even we've forgotten about him. I mean, yeah. Yeah. in a lot of ways, because I, I remember when I first found out that he filed a grievance, I was the one that broke that story and, and uh, had talked with his people for a while and, you know, kind of just following up after I'd initially heard that. And, and yeah, I mean, you mentioned true Floyd. I, I haven't thought about that story in a while. Um, and that's, yeah, that was a big, public one and and even if we forget about those how many more do we forget about yeah he's a good thing is he's back at florida working as a grad student he's trying to he's at least back around the sport but not one uh not at a point where he wants to talk anyway but there's just so many guys that um yeah there needs to be more done about that to bring that stuff to light and because the danger that we're seeing these players go through and injuries that continually pile up demar hamlin was playing in that game because micah hyde had a neck injury that kept him out. Damar Hamlin is a backup and was starting in that game because his guy ahead of him suffered a pretty traumatic injury himself. Uh, Brian is the, the best possible transition I can make is that Brian O'Neill uh, suffered a pretty traumatic injury himself uh, with a partially torn Achilles. 
that is going to knock him out for the rest of this season, if not affecting next season as well. That's in addition to the calf injury. O'Neill is going to undergo surgery. According to Kevin O'Connell, so is Austin Schlopman, who was the center starting for Garrett Bradbury. So either the Vikings are going to be starting a third center on Sunday in Chicago or Garrett Bradbury is going to make a comeback for what amounts to kind of a meaningless game for the Vikings. They need to win it, but they could probably win it with Ole Udo and Chris Reed on the offensive line, considering how Chicago has looked. Um, and the Vikings and considering how little interest Chicago probably has in winning it from an yeah. organizational perspective. They've lost yes. nine in a row, and I don't think they're going to start winning now if the number two or even number one pick are in uh, in clear view. They shut down Justin Fields for the rest of the season as soon yes. as Monday. I think it was Monday or Tuesday came and they were like, nope, he can't go. We're not even going to like wait until, you know, game time. No game time decision. Just this was a Tuesday decision, which never happens in the NFL. Don't screw this up for us, Justin. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a guy. Just for, I have a guy for the job. It's Nathan Peterman. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Eberflus, the head coach over there, was asked by a reporter. What do you say to the people who say sitting Justin is just obvious tanking for the number one pick? <laughs> And he goes, well, you have to look at the hurdles. He couldn't pass the medical protocol to play. And it's like, it's Tuesday. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, you can wait a little bit. No, okay. Boy. Never mind. Um, <laughs> you couldn't pass the medical protocols. Okay. Um. Uh, um, but anyway, so the Vikings can win this game, but they still need a lot to happen to play anybody but the New York Giants in round one of the postseason. Ben, you wrote about the different teams they could play. I believe there's four of them. Yes. Who should Vikings fans be wanting to see in round one? Well, uh, I ran a poll on Twitter about that very question, however scientific that is. Um, and the Giants were the overwhelming winner of the team that fans wanted to see. I, I don't know if that's because the Giants themselves are the easiest matchup or if the thing wrapped up in that is you're the number three seed, meaning – I think probably fans saying we're hoping that they sit starters and nobody else gets hurt and you just play the Giants because trying to get the number two seed may be too big of a risk. Um, I, I think that may be wrapped up in there. I think the Seahawks are probably the best matchup. I, that's not a terribly likely one for them to get. They'd have to be the number two seed and the Seahawks would have to win and the Packers would have to lose, I think, for that to happen. Yes, and the um, Packers would have to lose to a Lions team that would then have nothing, nothing to play, to play for. for. Yes. Yes. Yeah, not terribly likely, but the Giants are overwhelmingly the most likely. I I think a lot of the assumption about why that is the most favorable matchup, and again, maybe people are voting on that based on the idea that's favorable or just that not trying to risk the number two seed is uh, the number two seed is not worth the risk. But I would submit that the Giants game, the Giants matchup is a tougher one. Without Brian O'Neill, because the last time the Vikings played them, they had a healthy offensive line. The Giants sacked Kirk Cousins, I think, four or five times. Uh, blitz, they blitz more than any team in the league. You can expect that they would crank those things up again if the Vikings have a lot of new pieces on the offensive line that haven't played together. I mean, that piece of this matchup, Kayvon Thibodeau, Leonard Williams, the other guys the Giants have in that group, that is a tough assignment you have wink martindale that's going to blitz a lot you have andre patterson coaching those defensive linemen with a fair amount of knowledge about how to beat some of the vikings offensive linemen that he's coached his own guys against over the years so i i still think it's a, a winnable game it's not one that i would sit there and say 
gosh, this is, you know, you're going to run into a buzzsaw here. But I do think given what the Giants do well defensively, it does make it tougher when your offensive line is going to look a lot different than it did at Christmas Eve. Yeah, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I'm kind of 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 the same mind. I think that the Giants are of the most likely opponents, at least, because I think Seattle is, like you said, a pretty long shot because a lot of things have to happen along the way. I think Seattle would be the most favorable if, if we're just talking about of the four. But I think the Giants are the next most favorable just because... You know, no quarterback with no playoff experience. Um, you've got a team that kind of has overachieved like the Vikings have this year. Um, you know, a team that, you know, maybe doesn't, you know, was was got up to a good start, but then became, you know, kind of kind of got down a little bit and, you know, had a had a midseason lull. So I just think that, I think they're the best the, the best matchup that that's most likely just because of those reasons. But I and I, and you know, conversely, like I just don't think you want to see Green Bay or Detroit, two teams that you've just lost to in the last four or five weeks, and who frankly would not be afraid of you at this point in either, you know, even if it, even if it was at U.S. Bank Stadium, because those are two teams that have played awfully well. If you're talking about who's played better in the second half of the season, Detroit and Green Bay have been better teams than the Vikings in the second half of the season. That's just that's just fact, and maybe even throughout the duration of the season. Because if you look at some of the advanced numbers, like the Vikings are 28th in DVOA now, like they're. At twelve and four with that with that DVOA is just kind of bonkers. So it's weird to think about worrying so much about matchups with a twelve and four team that could very well be thirteen and four at year's end. But they still kind of need kind of an ideal scenario to even think about any kind of playoff run. Just with the, with the way they're constructed right now on the offensive line and with how some of these things have fallen in the last few weeks. The other piece of it, I think, with that make the Lions and the Packers tough is those are the two teams that have quarterbacks that have been to Super Bowls. Jared Goff and Aaron Rodgers have both made playoff runs before. Not in Jared Goff's case specifically because of him necessarily, but the other two guys you could play, Geno Smith, Daniel Jones, have never played a playoff game. And I think the more you can get those types of quarterbacks in U.S. Bank Stadium, the better. Now, the catch is being the number two seed and getting Brock Purdy in your building doesn't seem terribly likely. And you may have to go try to win the game against the bears. Although they may be able to do it with the backups too, but they missed an opportunity to get Brock Purdy in us bank stadium in round two. I think that's a tough matchup, no matter where that would happen. But if you can get him in the noise and say, all right, this is playoff football. You're on the road. Let's see if you can handle this environment. I, I think that's a big advantage. And the fact that they may not have it, I think hurts their chances of beating the 49ers should they run into them. By the way, Jared Goff's had a really nice season. Um, just yes, kind of he, has. At it. He, he kind of fell out of favor quickly with the Rams and, you know, just, you know, we went to that Super Bowl and they went, you know, 13 and you know, went 11 and four, 13 and three, then fell off a little bit and they traded him. But man, this year, 4,200 yards, 29 set, 29 touchdowns, seven interceptions. I mean, he's been awfully good. He's got a QBR. 62.6 pass rating over 100. Right. I mean, he's, yeah, he's had a nice yeah, yeah, season. Yeah, I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got Jared Goff thoughts. I, I, you could put Nick Foles in there right now and he'd be a playoff quarterback potentially. Like, right, how Nick Foles is right now. I think that offense is set up to have anybody walk in there and look like that. Even um, with broken ribs? I think Jared, yeah, I think Jared Goff has looked much better than I thought he would, but that is in part because the pieces around him have been also better than I thought they would. Um, I think. I think Frank Ragnow is one of the best uh, centers in football. He's Victoria, Minnesota's own. He's one of us. Hashtag. 
Frank Reich's uh, one of us. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I knew that. I did a draft story. He has actually a really good story. Uh, right when he came out, um, before he's a first round pick, I did a story on his family, and um, he's he's a great again, great story, great kid. People should root yeah. for him. Um, but he's awesome, and so is Taylor Decker, and so is Penny Sewell, and so is DeAndre Swift and Jamal. Oh, <laughs> Frank Ragnow, not said Frank, Frank Reich. Reich. Yeah. No, Frank Ragnow. Frank Ragnow, yes, I knew yes. that. I thought you said Frank Reich. Was, yes, I know Frank weird. Ragnow is one of us. Okay, sorry. sorry. Like, why are we Frank talking about Reich. the former Colts coach who was a quarterback of the Bills? The perils of Carry doing on. this on I'm going to mute myself now. The perils of doing this on Zoom. Uh, anyway, though, if the Vikings are going to make anybody or face any quarterback, I don't like their chances of making that quarterback look particularly bad unless it's Matt Ryan again because – They've had nine of the 16 quarterbacks they faced. Nine of those 16 performances have been top three in those quarterbacks' seasons this year. We are through 16 games now. Mac Jones had a career-high 382 yards. Mike White had a season-high 369. Daniel Jones had his second-highest mark at 334. Kyler Murray, a season-high 326 yards. Teddy Bridgewater, a season-high. And then guys like Justin Fields, he had his second-highest total back in Week 5 against the Vikings. And Justin Fields is really bad at throwing the football. Uh, Andy Dalton, Jalen Hurts, Josh Allen had their third best days of the year against the Vikings defense. They make everybody look good. And the ultimate test of that is going to be Nathan Peterman. It has to be, right? Yes. Yeah. Have you seen Peterman's numbers for his career? I mean, it's like, what's going on? Three touchdowns, 13 interceptions, a pass rating of like 32. Like he, this is like, we joke about backup quarterbacks, but like he's, legitimately like had a terrible run i believe he's made four starts for the bills those back in 2017 2018 he threw one touchdown to 10 interceptions in those games that included the five interception game i think it was a primetime game um i think it might have been a primetime game where he threw five picks for the bills and that led to maybe even john gruden saying his name over and over again and that led to uh, I think what ended up being a lot of our impersonations of John Gruden saying Nathan Peterman, but the John Gruden uh, impersonations falling out of favor. All right. Yeah, probably has. So it's a farm impersonation. I got to <laughs> <That's> admit. <true. laughs> um, anyway, let's talk about the fact that a Philadelphia loss this weekend could send the entire NFC standings into disarray because San Francisco has a shot at the one seed. They could win a 13 and four tiebreaker if Philly, San Francisco, Dallas, and Minnesota all finish 13 and four. Dallas could be the two seed in that scenario where the Vikings would be going to Dallas if they somehow uh, were to beat their first round opponent uh, at U.S. Bank Stadium. So if Philadelphia does not beat the New York Giants and Brian Dable, who has already come out and said, we're not resting anybody, we got nothing to play for, but we're not resting anybody. Um, if Philadelphia can't win that game, does that change at all the Vikings' outlook? Mike, you talk about the stars aligning for any kind of a playoff run. With how much these standings can change, I guess, do you see any kind of favorable path for them? I mean, again, the, the only favorable path I see for them is just like the moonshot where they, even if, rather they get the two or the three, which is you know probably the three at this point, where they get the Giants, they play reasonably well, they win that game, and then they have somebody knock off the the number two seed in that seven two game, and then they get to, you know, then they get to host in that next game the winner of the four five game, and maybe it's Tampa Bay. I mean, you know, it's, which is a you know, it's Tom Brady. Let's not discredit that, but that's not like you know 
playing Tom Brady at home. Um, and there's not, they're not a great team. Like they could win that game. I wouldn't think that was impossible. And then they need, I think another, you know, maybe either another upset or, you know, you know, get the, get the NFC title game at home against some, you know, some other team that's not that great. I mean, it's, it's just, it's weird to think about a team that's 12 and four right now, needing the stars to align essentially for a Super Bowl run. But I just don't see them like they've been behind Dave Campbell, our, our, our uh, covers the team for AP had a great series of tweets the other day about all the teams in the last, I don't know how many years that have fallen behind by more than 33 points in, um, in more than three games in a season. And, like every other team, like there's been like nine other teams in whatever span of time, and their combined season record is like 28 and 100. And the Vikings are 12 and four. And it's like the, you falling behind by that many points is, is a little bit fluky, but so is also being 12 and four when you fall behind by that much. So I just, I just don't see a deep playoff run unless they get some, some major help. I could see it, I could see getting to the NFC title game without it being a complete fluke, but I just can't see a a real legitimate run without a lot of the same kind of blessed nature that they've had throughout the course of this season. The path you are outlining may be the most feasible. If yes, the person doing your dirty work, yes, you know, the name I'm going to say Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers. Yes. Now Aaron Rodgers in the playoffs against San Francisco may not be a sure thing. Certainly has not been through the course of his career, but uh, or maybe Jared Goff goes on a run, but it is one of those quarterbacks going into San Francisco, knocking them off, and then going into Philly, and then knocking out the Eagles. So uh, Aaron Rodgers as the hired gun, uh, I suppose, would not be the weirdest hired gun relationship with a former Packers quarterback uh, that the Vikings <laughs> had, but that may be the, the way to get it done. Consulting pretty- instead of full-time employment, I guess. I I like and Green Bay's chances against those better teams than the Vikings' chances do right now. I just I just don't like the way the Vikings are playing right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the game on Sunday certainly opened up a lot of the big issues and a lot of the big questions that we've had, in addition to the new ones that are created by the injuries. Yes. Yeah, we're let's let's close, Ben, because you had some thoughts about that Green Bay game and I watched it back as well. And I, I just I don't think Green Bay is a great matchup. For Minnesota in terms of how Green Bay is playing, how they coach, how their coaches adjusted defensively in that game. Um, but we saw some stuff from the Vikings that we continue to see as, as you were pointing out. Yeah. I, I think if you are looking for a silver lining, I guess I'll, I'll frame it this way. Cause this is not going to sound like a silver lining once I get going, but if you are looking for one, it may be, that part of the reason they lost the game was doing to was due to them doing so many stupid things that it doesn't seem that likely they would do them again. You start with the cleats. I mean, the, the fact that Kevin O'Connell said afterwards, you know, we we strongly encourage them to wear seven studded cleats all week. And players, some players heeded that advice, some did not. The the slips in the first half had a lot to do with some of these drives not coming together. You had uh, Jalen Naylor, it looked like, probably jumped two gaps over, I think, on the uh, the kick return for a touchdown, left that big seam in the middle. But the one that really got me was the last uh, touchdown drive the Packers had that, that really kind of put the game away. I think it was the one where the Vikings had 10 guys on the field in one play, 
they had 12 guys in the field on another play trying to sub. Uh, Rodgers kind of did a hurry up, and it looked like Harrison Smith was kind of motioning to try to get guys lined up before the play. They, they didn't get their subs off in time. There was a play in the middle of that that they had a three-man rush on a second down on that drive, and the, the they dropped Daniil Hunter into coverage, and I think uh, – they beat Daniel Hunter in coverage for the first down. And then they had Zedarius Smith covering Alan Lazard. Their three-man rush was Kyrus Tonga, Dalvin Tomlinson, and TJ Smith. Like, why are you calling that? What, like, where in the thinking of the best way to get to the quarterback are you deciding a three-man rush that does not include Zedarius Smith or Daniel Hunter is a good way to go against Aaron Rodgers. I I I didn't get that at all, and you know that in conjunction with the other mistakes, in conjunction with I I thought Justin Jefferson, you know, kind of letting Jair Alexander into his head, um, the number of times where they had Justin Jefferson matched up on a linebacker and they weren't able to get anything out of them. That happened four or five times, where it was Preston Smith or. Devondre Campbell that, or Quay Walker. They, I mean, they had opportunities like they did in the first game to get Justin Jefferson in favorable matchups. They didn't hit on those. And, uh, you know, just really across the board, a lot of mental errors, a lot of uncharacteristic, undisciplined moments that we have not seen this team make throughout the year. I mean, they've certainly had good luck, but they've also, I think, you know, much like Billy Zane in Titanic, made a lot of their own luck because they haven't beaten themselves and they did a lot of things on Sunday to do that. And uh, I think if you wanted to look for a silver lining, it would be that, well, they're probably not going to do quite as many of those things again. So maybe that helps. Much like Billy Zane, are they going to be the first on the boat in the postseason? fishing, gone fishing, getting out of there? Um, to your point about the defensive stuff too, I think they got, they just got out coached defensively. They got out coached because in those moments you saw the Vikings go, Vikings are really weak on the perimeter in terms of defending the underneath stuff, right? Like it's why they give up so much soft, easy completions because they're trying to take away the middle of the field and they're trying to play deep. And so that leaves you soft on the edges. And so the Packers are really good under LaFleur getting the perimeter stuff as we see all the time. So the Vikings are like, okay, we're going to play five wide at the front and try to take away the edges by collapsing them. And the Packers are like, all right, we're just going to spread them out and go empty backfield at times. And whoops. Now all of a sudden Daniel Hunter's covering whoever. And yeah, Yeah. as you said, Smith on Lazard or whatever it was, I don't know if that three, three man rush was schemed up. Maybe that, I don't know why you would ever not send four. So that had to have been coached in there. There were a couple times I sent three. Getting one of your edges matched up on a linebacker, that's just it's it's what O'Connell does to defenses yep. all the time, as you said. It's just it's out coaching and finding that good matchup. And the Vikings couldn't even take advantage of it with Jefferson because he's slipping because he has the wrong shoes. That I, we brought it up after the game, but that's the young kid's biggest mistake of the entire yeah. year is not listening to uh to Dennis Ryan, that's the Ryan. equipment guy. Um yeah, it's just one thing after another that led to 41-17. And as I saw Patrick Royce refer to it, the son of 41 donut. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was. He gave up 41 unanswered after yeah, the opening field goal. They did. And, you know, and if the cleats were his biggest uh, mistake, the 
if 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 Clint Kubiak had called that series of plays at the one yard line after the block punt, I think we would have been calling for a firing instead of uh, instead of anything else. Those are not a, that was not an impressive three play sequence, especially a third down run up the middle with your third string center in in charge of things. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're saying is you need to make your own luck, which means you need to listen to your friend Billy Zane. He's a cool dude. <laughs> uh all right well all the 1990s movie wrestling okay. <laughs> here i got titanic i got zoolander got them all all right that'll be it for us from this episode of the access vikings podcast please check out all of our work at startribune.com <laughs>